and welcome to Dead Darlings. I'm Rebecca Cooney. I'm Laurie Eaves. And I'm Hannah Hutzber. Dead Darlings is a monthly podcast for the spoken word community in London and beyond. Each month we'll be bringing you interviews, tips, inspiration and above all, awesome poetry from London's spoken word scene. We'll also be telling you what's on and where you can submit your work. This month we'll be going virtually down to Bristol to talk to Bridget Hart and chatting about Hold Your Own by Kate Tempest. And we'll be bringing you a writing tip from, um, let's see, who? Me! (laughs) But first, what have you been up to this month, Rebecca? Me? Uh, Bugger all. Uh, (laughs) Really? Uh, yeah, I did poetry at your place again, uh, which is, is, I know I know we've been on about this before, but it, it is rather lovely. And I wasn't just saying that to suck up to Rick last month. <laughs> um, it really is a, a, a really, really lovely event. Other than that, been a bit quiet, done a little bit of writing, done some editing, mm-hmm. played around with concrete poetry and made a, especially that's when you um, lay out the poem on the page in a, in a particular shape uh, so that, that reflects something that's going on in the poem. So I tried to make my poem look like a snail. And I felt rather like a small child with kind of, you know, where they've sort of splotted sort of five dots of paint in different colours on the page. And then they go, do you like my picture? And the mum's like, I don't want to ask what it is. <laughs> I don't want to ask because yeah, that's a nice, that's a really good house is it a house <laughs> do you know uh so yeah so that's been fun i've been playing around with that a little bit but other than that kind of yeah not a lot a lot of working a lot of napping <laughs> Excellent. yeah uh how about you guys so i having told everyone that they need to go to do lost lit uh last uh, on the last episode um it was the most surprisingly quiet it has ever been on the was it third of june um it was the day of the Black Lives Matter protests in London. And I think at that point in time, if anyone was on Twitter, then your eye was immediately drawn to what's going on. And I, I don't know if anyone else has experienced this, but I've been finding this kind of weird mental block around writing at the minute that I feel like with so many serious and horrific current events things going on, or if not, like, I feel like personally my mental health got a lot better when the Coulston statue <laughs> went down that then <laughs> things seem to turn a corner in terms of we're doing things to make something better it's not just this unfolding horrific just just nightmare scenario in every single way um but i don't know if anyone else has been experiencing this kind of feeling that you have to be you either should be writing about the really really important current events or i don't know i i definitely don't feel like i'm at a stage where i can say anything meaningful yet it has not sort of come to fruition in my head but I've also been feeling this weird mental block and yeah Lost Lit was the quietest I've ever ever seen it um but that said I think we probably need to I don't know I, there I, are other things that exist in life that aren't poetry that are important to be doing yes yes definitely but also I think that the that what's going on that's important and what you're writing do not need to be connected um I feel like I kind of dug my own dug myself into a hole with that And also that you don't have to, I mean, I've been writing a lot of short stuff lately. Mm. And I think that feeling of you don't have to say everything about it. If you just, maybe maybe it's only a few lines. Maybe it's just a short thing. It's not the whole thing. Mm. Oh, Rebecca, I want to read this stuff. Yeah, In due time, in due time. Uh, Sorry, Hannah, you were saying. uh, So I hosted Insight, which is uh, London's longest running LGBT open mic. And that is the second time that it's been online now post lockdown. And I feel like we're starting to find our feet. It's it's really interesting watching nights adapt and change and what works, what doesn't work. Um, but it was probably the liveliest one we've had. We had um, 
even people people coming in from different cities we've had a few times now but um we actually had a representative from pride in plymouth uh talking about the work that they're doing which you know if we were meeting up in person would be quite a trek for a spoken word night but i feel like in some ways the world's getting smaller with that and we also had a poet in from maine in the u.s so i have officially hosted my first ever international wow. <laughs> um night. Ooh. so that that was a lot of fun hannah hutzper international queer of mystery <clears throat> i'm so mysterious so <laughs> so mysterious. was that an austin powers <laughs> reference <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> oh also i've been Ooh. I've been finding it interesting on the uh, how how we do Zoom or other online video um, poetry nights. I've been trying to make my backgrounds as big and loud as I possibly can, so that as the host, it's clear sort of <laughs> who's who's you know at a glance. That's the one with the giant rainbow flag, really perfectly framed in the background, and she's wearing a top hat. That's the host. <laughs> and I also purchased twenty meters of fairy lights which I've strung up in a kind of semicircle over my desk from a, just so that the lighting is, is more kind of, it, it works like one of those kind of lit mirrors almost just like, yeah, the, the kind of aesthetics of mm. how the fuck do you put on a show in your bedroom? Um, I can get rid of nasty harsh shadows with that. And you know, it's, I like fairy lights. Oh yeah. I mean, all interior design choices should start with a pile of books and some fairy yeah, lights. Yeah. I mean, I, I grew up in the nineties, you know, it's, it's unavoidable, but um, <laughs> yeah, I've, I've been thinking, been thinking more and more about yeah how we run online stuff, how we make it look and feel, and yeah the how to how to make it a show in this new weird format. Laurie, what have you been up to? What have I been up to? Um, it's been a weird few weeks. Um, I've had a couple of weeks off from work, which uh, has been nice. Been trying to find a nice balance of poetry stuff and other stuff. So I did a set for sport poetry down in Exeter um, that's just come out um, as a podcast, which you can check out wherever people get podcasts, probably wherever you're listening to this. So that was exciting. I've also been, I started doing the 100 day writing challenge from the Death of a Thousand Cuts podcast, Mm -hmm. um, which we've talked about before, which is basically an extension of the Couch to 80K course. So it's kind of, uh, daily 10 minute writing exercises done for free by a podcast yeah this one's more extensive than the last one which was about yeah which was eight weeks this is 100 days i'm on day 15 i think of that it's good it's fun it's interesting to be writing stuff again in a more concerted way because i haven't done something like that in a structured way for a couple of years so that's exciting been doing a fair amount of reading i've just been reading mary dickens pamphlet happiness fm which came out this month Mm -hmm. which is great we also read later jane king's uh, midnight picnics in tehran which is a really interesting book um talking a lot about identity and iran where i've never been Mm -hmm. and now want to visit because (laughs) she's uh made a really interesting world of it in the book i had Um, the same thing after reading the uh reading lolita in tehran um oh. it just like describing what tehran particularly what it was like before the revolution and i just thought yeah that sounds great that sounds like a really interesting mm. place to go i've also um been i've specifically started soliciting editing work again which is exciting so i've started to look at a couple of manuscripts from other writers so 
that's an exciting challenge to get back into. I've not really done that for a while. Um, I thought that would be a good way into starting to dip my toe into, I guess, a new book. So that's exciting um, that I'm working on. I've got a project starting to click the gas on i think so yeah can you tell us any more about it or are you gonna can i i mean i can um is it ultimate panda is it ultimate panda no um it was that was the name that i dreamt my second collection was going to be called um but i've got a a work i'm using a new working title which is get human Mm. um and yeah just starting to dip my toe into it and i've been using my spare time to I found a big cache of stuff I've written over the last couple of years that I didn't know where it was so <laughs> oh, I've been I like it to go back through over that and and like opening up weird file names and being like what the hell was it? oh it's that weird thing I wrote okay <laughs> um but that's quite a nice fun process I've been doing with my afternoon today so mm, very cool right shall we crack on and do an interview then yeah This month's interview is with Bridget Hart. Bridget Hart is a poet who describes their work as a love letter to resilience and survivorship. They have performed at a variety of events, including the Cheltenham Literature Festival, the Verve Poetry Festival, Manchester Punk Festival, Shambhala, Boomtown Fair and the Audacious Women Festival. In 2017, they released the debut pamphlet, Better Watch Your Mouth, under their dead name, Jen Hart, and are currently working on their new collection, Chewing Gum, inspired by the Grease franchise. Bridget is the co-editor of Burning Eye Books, an indie poetry press based in the Southwest, which is the biggest publisher of spoken word in the UK. Bridget has appeared on panels and facilitated workshops on modern publishing and is a regular judge for Unislam. They are also a freelance editor and the Southwest producer for For Book's Sake. They curate and host Bristol's premier queer feminist night, that's what she said. They are also the co-producer of popular podcasts for punks, Chips and Beans, with Cassie Abahenu, and their podcast is a monthly catch-up on DIY punk, queer culture and relationships. So, Bridget, thank you very much for joining us. Would you be able to kick us off with a poem? Yeah, of course. Um, So this is actually um, a short one, inspired by the three great women of the Greece franchise, Rizzo, Chacha (laughs) and Stephanie. Um, This poem hasn't got a title yet because it's quite new, uh, but it goes like this. Rizzo, you should know the storm caused by your reckoning has lasted. No one ever wanted to be Sandy. They all wanted to be you. Chacha. You were so much more than they gave you. Those moves are legend. And later, Joan Jett dedicated a whole song to your reputation. (laughs) Stephanie. You were true to yourself. One day, they'll add Cool Rider into the Grease Megamix. (laughs) And that's it. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) And yes, because we didn't do it before. New, New shit. shit. Yeah. <laughs> uh, brilliant. So we usually like to ask people how they started out in spoken word. How did you get into spoken word to begin with? Um, so I originally was really into theatre and drama. And I did like youth theatre and stuff when I was little. And then um, I sort of fell out of love with it after I went to National Youth Theatre. And then I had always written poetry, but as a sort of very self-expression sort of thing, not really sharing with anyone. Um, And then I went to university and started kind of getting involved with stuff in the city to do with spoken word, Um, performed at my first event in like 2010, 11, I think. 
um and then just like loved it and then just started to be like oh what can I do what can I do got involved in doing some apples and snakes stuff um and working with artful scribe who are Southampton and the 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 sort of south region's sort of premier poetry organization there um and that's sort of how I got into it really just like absolutely loved it what was it that drew you to it in the first place do you think I think like I have always really loved performing but I like I've always had a very complicated relationship with acting in terms Mm -hmm. of having to take on someone else's role someone else's trauma someone else's life Mm -hmm. and I wasn't I was very young when I got into it and I went to National Youth Theatre when I was like 16 I was too young and um it, it was a very bad time for me basically and I have, but I've always come alive on stage and I've always really enjoyed it. So when I discovered that I could perform my own stuff as myself, just sort of like was like, yeah, this is this is what I've been looking for, that happy medium between acting and being myself. Awesome. That's what she said. I've only been to the London branch, but I know that it's how many it's at least three. There's the Manchester branch as well. Are there Manchester, London and Bristol? Yeah. And my experience with the London one, at least, is that it's sort of the most hybrid night in terms of I feel that there's sometimes quite a divide between the sort of lively spoken word gigs where it's a lively atmosphere, but everyone's too broke to buy the book. (laughs) And some of the more sort of chin strokey, more literary, (laughs) everyone will buy a book, but they don't cheer (laughs) and they don't sort of they don't seem as lively as an audience. And that's what she said is this, I think it's one of the only nights I've seen that's really kind of got the best of both worlds. Like purchasing books and being part of the literary scene is definitely part of it. And people read prose and manuscripts as well as um, poetry pieces. But yeah, I wanted to know sort of how did you plan it that way? How did you bring it together? The way that I got involved with For Book's Sake and that's what she said is... um, I basically did a tour with a poet called Agnes Torek, who is a Burning Eye poet. Um, they're based in Sweden. Um, they used to be a, a, Scot- a Scottish poet um, before they moved back. Um, so I did a tour with them, and one of our dates was uh, that's what she said in London. And I'd heard of like that's what she said before, and like the kind of thing that they were doing. Um, and I was like, oh yeah, that seems really cool. Quite like that. So I went along uh, into this gig with Agnes, who was headlining, um, and uh, I was doing a, a support set. And I basically have a lot of poems about Riot Girl, a lot of poems about uh, punk bands, feminist punk bands, and things like that. So I was basically like pulling out <laughs> all of my like feminist punk shit. <laughs> and Paul, Paul Foster, who is the uh, events coordinator for For Book's Sake and the host of the London Sector. Um, was sort of stood at the side and just kept being like ah oh oh everything uh, every time that there was like a thing and like normally when I do a set like most of the some people in the audience will be like get Mars Sleet Kinney reference but like Laurie for example would get (laughs) just me just just sorry absolutely and Paul was just getting everything absolutely everything and at the end of the night, it turned out that I was uh, sat next to Paul's partner. Um, uh, and so we all just started chatting afterwards. And, and I was like, oh, yeah, I live in Bristol. And they were like, oh, you've just moved to Bristol. And I was like, amazing. And Paul was like, do you want to host a Bristol sector? That's what she said. And I was like, <laughs> I feel like I've been waiting my whole life for this. Yes, <laughs> awesome. I, I absolutely do. 
Uh, and that's just like how it came about. And like me and Paul were like thick as thieves now. It's amazing. It's really, really cool. So I think like in terms of the, the Bristol and the Manchester and the London one all kind of have their own personalities and they're all kind of different in their own way. So what is the difference between them? And what's the Bristol Nights one? I think like it's really like dependent on the demographic, isn't it? Because like if you do a, a franchise night in, in different cities, there's always going to be different depending on the local area, how, uh, you know, populated it is how uh what the spoken word scene is like there and i think the london one is has a yeah like you say like a really nice special atmosphere like i really enjoy going to london and, and seeing it and like the crowd is always so supportive and so lovely and um it's really nice and the the bristol one is is i don't know it's like it's been quite a long time since we've done one now so I'm really trying to remember what it's like <laughs> you know I think the last one I hosted was in December because I had a couple of months where I was ill and then obviously lockdown happened so I haven't mm. hosted one in Bristol for a while but Bristol is kind of it's still finding its feet I think but it's uh, before lockdown happened it was starting to like have a real nice feel to it so there was a lot of um there's a lot of women that come to our nights and a lot of queer people that, that come. Um, and there's always a different crowd depending on who the headliner is, which is which is actually really nice. But my favourite thing about it is that there's a lot of local voices that come to That's What She Said. And a lot of people that come that say that they don't go to any of the other poetry nights for sure, which I'm like, oh, okay, that's really nice. Um, <laughs> and it sort of has its own, or it's starting, I feel, before lockdown, starting to have its own community starting to build. So we've been going in Bristol since uh, October 2018. Um, so we're, we're, we're getting like that traction and, and that familiarity within the, the local uh, scene in Bristol. Um, but it's really nice to have people that, that just come to our night because they feel like it's the, it's the best place for them to be. Like That's really nice. <laughs> and you've kind of described it as a sort of explicitly queer feminist night. And What do you think having a space like that offers to writers and performers? I think it offers them space to be able to get up on stage and say what they want to say without like a lot of their usual anxieties. Anxiety is always going to be there no matter what you're performing. You know, we all have it. But I think there's something about talking to your people, you know, talking to a crowd that you know that are there specifically because they understand what kind of event it is. So even if they've just come as audience members and not to perform, they understand the space that's there. You know, we make it very clear that that's what their space is for. So I think it allows performers to just, yeah, like imagine that kind of space because a lot of the other nights, although they are, you know, very open and inclusive of those things they're not specifically for the like it's not a, a specific thing so we're the only uh night in in bristol that that is for uh female identifying performers and non-binary performers only um everyone else is is all genders and things like that so we're we're the only ones that offer that as a as a space for performers to come and i think that offers people the the area and the the confidence to be able to like talk about things or do poems that maybe they wouldn't do in other spaces because they might not feel safe enough and do you find the do you find the audiences that you pull in a different as well um for that for those kind of events yeah i think like um we we're a ticketed event so a lot of events will be on the door and we do sell tickets on the door but um, most of our most of our ticket sales come from uh, Eventbrite. That's how we sell our tickets. 
and we'll get like groups of people like five or six under one name you know someone will bring like a whole party of their friends and they're looking for a nice time and they're all like really excited to be there and none of them are performing they're, they're just going because they're excited for the poetry they want to see what's what's happening they want to see what the lineup's going to be like so we get that quite a lot so that's really nice to like have that space that people that might not go to other poetry nights might be like oh actually because this is something that's marketed as a feminist night hmm. like maybe we'll like take more of an interest in it rather than being like oh there's a poetry night on and the the lineup happens to be you know all female people or some trans or non-binary people uh you know maybe we'll go to that because I feel like we're marketed in a particular way there's a lot of groups of like friends and stuff that are interested in that they want to they want to see what's out there they want to see they want to be entertained and and uh, relate to a lot of the material so you know what you're going to get when you go to a feminist night because it's going to be you know that kind of feminist. thing uh, yeah it's going to be feminist and it's going to be something that at some point someone in the audience will relate to in some way uh, brilliant and you're quite into punk uh sort of separately or not separately from the poetry thing but you, you also kind of you know you run this punk podcast uh, and that's kind of it's very much part of of your sort of uh style and I was just wondering how you see the relationship between poetry and punk so I've been doing um poetry in the punk scene as long as I've been doing performing poetry um mm. my, I, it kind of stemmed from having a boyfriend in a band and um being friends with the other girlfriends in the band <laughs> and um and then all of us sort of discovering feminism at the same time and being like wait a minute <laughs> <laughs> like what's what's this what's this uh, all about then wait right, a minute yeah. this bin could fit a whole man in it <laughs> yeah i'd be oh, okay right okay and like just like the unusual dynamics that come with being in a relationship with a with a boy in a band when you're discovering feminism and you're like oh, actually you've got a lot of power here haven't you and i was like i've got this i've got this skill like i perform poetry like i want to what's the difference between me doing it at poetry night and me doing it at a punk night like this mm-hmm. is my art like if boys can get up and do shit songs about women <laughs> then I can get up and do like a shit poem about cups of tea. Uh, fuck you and do what I want. <laughs> uh, so I just started doing it at, at punk shows and like my, to be fair to them, the boys in the band, they were very supportive and a lot of the time they let me perform with them and I did perform on a song on one of their later albums, which is very nice. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's very good. Um, not nice. <laughs> very nice of them. So lovely. No, it was very good. <laughs> I mean, it was the least that I deserved. Um, and, and yeah, and I just started getting a bit of a name for myself. And, and then I started incorporating, like, the levels of inequality in punk into my poetry a bit more because I started mm-hmm. to be, I started to analyse that relationship between me being a, a partner of someone in a band and actually what that meant for my identity mm-hmm. and how that melded actually with their identity and how I was not okay with that. <laughs> And uh, so poetry was like a way for me to to explore that on stage. And at that point, like feminist punk was starting to happen in, in the UK scene, like mm. in the DIY, like feminism was becoming much more of a bigger thing. Like Riot Girl was starting to have a major influence in what we were doing. And uh, it, it just sort of started changing. So I started like promoting. So I put on gigs with, and I would only put on gigs that were female lineups, majority female lineups. And I organised like Lady Our Wife Fest in 2015 in Bristol um, with a load of other amazing people. 
and I just started getting really into it and poetry became a massive part of that because it, it gave me the space to be able to articulate a lot about how I was feeling about being a promoter that was not male and yeah. I was in a punk band at the time and, and what that felt like to be on stage and like the the inequality of male sound engineers telling female musicians who are learning mm. like basically get really frustrated and like that like every kind of element of of feminist punk and how that was coming in so a lot of my work when I moved to Bristol and was getting involved in things was very very centered in punk rather than poetry yeah it's interesting I think one of the things people kind of misunderstand about punk or is feeling that it's kind of a, a style of music when it's much more kind of DIY kind of state of mind really and you know not in that that kind of DIY aspect seems to have completely informed a lot of your work um not just in poetry yeah yeah that's true I love DIY I'm a very independent person just in myself so DIY allows me to really explore that level of independence and has allowed me to do so many things in my life because I've just said I don't need anyone's permission to do this I'm just gonna fucking do it yeah that's indeed <laughs> <laughs> um, I know in, in the past you've sort of spoken out um, about abuse in the poetry scene and I think when we spoke about this before um, you compared the way the poetry scene deals with this issue to the way the punk scene manages it and I just wondered if you had any thoughts about what the poetry scene can learn from punk in that sense and also how the punk scene um, deals with it because I'm completely new to this <laughs> okay so um, I guess I'll answer your question first, Hannah, in mm. the sense that um, uh, a few years ago, a, a, prominent, a, a, a sort of prominent, but also completely obsolete and pointless member of the punk scene, male member of the punk scene, who had some traction and some fame behind him, um, uh, sued or um, basically um, issued, the, well, I don't know what the word is, but he tried to sue. Um, cease and desist stuff. Yeah, he's, he, he basically put out a defamation of character um, against several women in the punk scene because they had spoken out explicitly about his behaviour. Um, mm. I can't mm. talk too much about it right now, but right. I will say that in response to this barrage of legal fees and um, sort of oppression in that way... Um, yeah they started, they grouped together and they started the Solidarity Not Silence, um, which is a campaign to help them with their legal costs. Um, and you mm -hmm. can donate online now. There's like a GoFundMe for it. But mm -hmm. it's basically because these people or, um, yeah, these, these women specifically um, and people were speaking out about, about his violence in the punk scene. And there's a lot of it. There's a lot of uh, male musicians who think that they can abuse their power to you know get what they want with with women you know and mm -hmm. sadly there's so many cases of people claiming sexual assault against somebody it's it's really bad um so in terms of like the poetry scene and like in every scene in every community there are assholes trying to hurt <laughs> people and there are assholes who sexually abuse women and they rely in the same way that the government relies on on us to be like this to like deal with things and not talk about things is these people rely on our silence like if the community is silent about it they get away with it mm. and that's what they rely on they rely on their power over these victims um 
and the fact that they then rely on the fact that the victim's not going to tell anyone. And if the mm. victim tells anyone, then it will be a small group of people, usually other women, and no one will, will believe them or take them seriously. And that's what they rely on. Mm. And I think there's a, there, there are people in the poetry scene and I, 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 don't, I think it would be naive to think that the poetry scene is all lovely and bubbly because it's not. There yeah. are, there are pe- these people in every community and they exist everywhere and they rely on silence to, to continue to have their positions of power. And what happened with these women that are behind the Solidarity Not Silence campaign is that they were like, no, fuck you. You're not just going to like, try and sue us for defamation of character. We're going to make this public. Um, and so uh, they were anonymous um, and they set up the Solidarity Not Silence brand and they have raised thousands and thousands of pounds for their legal fees um, awesome. just for speaking out. And and it's hard. And like, that's that's a terrible result. Like They shouldn't have had to get to that point where, mm. you know, but this is how easy it is for abusers to, to mm. threaten people with the law. Like the law is not in favor of survivors. It's not in favor of victims of sexual assault and rape and people that commit those things will always hide behind the law and the thing about it being so unjust in the punk scene is that these punk bands they get up on stage and they say ACAB all coppers are bastards but they will hide behind the law so quickly (laughs) when it comes to being accused of sexual assault Hmm. and that's and that's an hypocrisy and I think because the poetry scene is also so uh politically heightened like people talk about politics mm. a lot uh, in the same way that they do in punk and a lot of it is it, the, the the parallels of poetry and punk in terms of its politics are so similar in, in a lot yeah. of ways depending on you know where you are and I... and we need to get braver in terms of how we uh, extend our boundaries and who mm. we let into our poetry nights and how we deal with those things. Like it's up to all of us to learn and gain the tools to be able to do this and not to keep reaching blindly in the dark and being like, Oh, I don't know what to do because that's what they thrive on. It's the fact that we mm. don't know what to do. I think it's also really easy to fall into the trap of believing that because it's poetry Therefore, it's kind of full of full of nice people with with who are writing lovely things, and it's you know like there is such a positive energy in that community that it's easy to to overlook or not notice stuff mm-hmm. that is awful going on in it. Yeah, I agree. It is, and I think people hide behind that sometimes and see pretend they haven't seen things when may- maybe they have, or you know, don't want to get involved or whatever mm-hmm. it is. Um, yeah and it's that that's very frustrating and I think often with the poetry scene that because the people who are abusers sort of have the language to express themselves mm. you know they, they they often co-opt the language of people who are talking about abuse themselves do you know what I mean and, and that becomes a kind of a well you know I'm I'm a I'm a good man who talks about feminist things in my poems or you know understands the language of, of redemption or um well, it's easy to spread a narrative if you've got the vocabulary to do that, right? Ooh, yeah. Yes, I think that's fair. Yeah, I definitely agree with you there. Like, you know, and it's the same with punk as well. Like, you can get up on stage and do a really heartfelt song about, you know, these kinds of things. And people are like, oh, yeah, it's great. It's amazing. You know, and it's, uh, and then it like devalues what you're trying to say. And it's really hard then, I think, because like there's this 
there's this on-stage persona and then this off-stage persona. Mm. And um, the charm can be a shield and, against crappy things. Yeah, and and I, I, you know, I don't, I don't like to say it, but I think a lot of people are very naive when it comes to these things and give too many people the benefit of the doubt. And mm. I'm a survivor of abuse, and I, I can't afford that luxury. Mm. And I, I tend to be quite vigilant when it comes to things like this as much as possible. But you know. It, but it, it's it's frustrating. It's frustrating to watch people get away with their shit. <laughs> yeah, for sure. But one other thing, I know we're not naming that name, but uh, I've seen that <laughs> band and they were shit. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> can't name the band. <laughs> Don't want I to get sued. <laughs> I think that's what's known as the small penis defense, isn't it? There's something in libel law that if you write a character that is too close to somebody that they might sue you, you say. And he has a small dick. Um, and then he will never sue you because he doesn't want to admit to being the man with a small dick. Oh, okay. Um, I believe that. that's a traditional thing that, yeah, they used to say about libel. <laughs> well, that's a bit body shaming for me, but, you know. That's true. Whatever. That's true. Whatever shuts them the fuck up, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's lesser of two evils, maybe. I don't know. Yeah, it's bullshit, but, you know. It's it's you've got to be vigilant about it and you've got to be aware and you have to listen to survivors. Like no one listens to survivors. Like so many fucking women get up on stage and talk about rape and sexual assault and no one fucking listens to what they're actually fucking saying. <laughs> it's like people go to poetry and they like clap and they say it's amazing. I'm like, if you actually listen to some of the things that are being said on stage, ha- like, hmm. do you know what I mean? Like it's it's not it's there. It's all there for you. You just have to like take the initiative and think about it a little bit more. I, don't I know. think it's also easier to be supportive in the abstract. Mm. A woman says, you know, yeah. I have been raped. And you go, that is fucking terrible. Mm. And then she says, I have been raped by your mate, John, who's really nice to you. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Then people find it harder. Yeah. It's the doubt, isn't it? You know? Yeah. And it's the same thing with, um, you know, what's happening with Black Lives Matter at the moment. And in terms of like, black people telling white people their experiences and white people doubting them about those experiences. Mm. Like Mm. we need to stop doubting people and actually take trust people, trust, trust people, people's experience. Definitely. Given the questions we got next, I think it's going to be a big turning circle perhaps, but you co you co run burning out books. Can you tell us a bit about uh, what it's like running a DIY publisher so, uh, Burning Eye Books. Okay, so Clive Burney, who is Burning Eye Books, mm-hmm. um, he set up um, the publisher in 2011, 2012, um, because he was like, you know, speak word artists, you know, they do a lot of gigs and they don't sell anything, you know, like, should, we should, we should, maybe I should make some books. So um, he started Burning Eye Books and, um, because of the work I was doing in Southampton, I was introduced to people like Johnny Fluffy Punk and mm-hmm. Anna Freeman, who are Southwest poets mm-hmm. and pu- both early published by Burning Eye Books very early on. Mm-hmm. And that's sort of how then how the name got in my head. And um, and then when I moved to Bristol, I was doing a I was at one point working five jobs, like zero hour Ooh. contract jobs, like just yeah, like really, like just trying to survive kind of job. <laughs> and um, and I got a message one day from Pete Hunter, who used to run Southwest Apples and Snakes, mm. uh-huh. and was like, Clive Burney's looking for someone to work like one or two days a week doing some admin. Like, 
here's his email address. So within like 40 minutes, I'd like hounded him several times <laughs> on, on like email and Twitter and Facebook. I was just like, me, me, I need, I, I want, want the me, job. me. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and, uh, and then we met and just kind of like, he was like, yeah, all right, let's give it a go, see what happens. And we worked really well together. Like mm-hmm. it just just happened that we just got on really well. Like Clive is an amazing person because he basically from day one just allowed me the space to do what I wanted. Started me yeah. off on really small like stuff like social media and things like that, but didn't tell me what to do or the method to do it. It was just like, just, just do it however you think is best. Mm-hmm. And I went from, so I've been working that for Burning Eye Books for like five years now. And I went from doing two days a week to like four days a week like as co-editor because Clive just gave me the space to do what I in things in the way that I wanted to do and that's how I thrive in in a work in a workplace environment is just being allowed the space to be able to do it because I have my I'm so independent I have my own way of doing things all the time and um I just found my flow with it and I just fell in love with it the more and more that I did it and got involved in it been a really fun five years (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you ask for like for for you now running a DIY publisher you know you've obviously got a pretty good idea of what that involves but to somebody who's like potentially sending a manuscript or starting out in spoken word it'd be useful to know a little bit more about kind of what 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 does your job actually involve Bridget? <laughs> <laughs> so my job as co-editor is um mostly front of house stuff so I manage the submissions. So every time we have an open submissions, um, that's me reading your manuscript, sending you your reply um, uh, email back or whatever. Um, so I do that. And then I take the accepted manuscripts and I start working with those poets um, on a date for the following year. So my schedule, I, I basically uh, have a schedule for this year and a schedule for next year running at the same time at all times. And uh, so I basically work with next year's poets to be like, okay, great. When do you want to release next year? Let's chat about what we're going to do. I take everyone. I basically project manage everybody through the process all the way to post-production to the print of the book. So I also do all of the social media stuff. So all the Twitter posts, Facebook, Instagram, that's all me. I do Mm -hmm. all of that. Um, The blog, everything. Um, And yeah, that's, that's my job. My lots of my my very broad job (laughs) (laughs) what we've what we've uh heard before from uh other publishers uh indie publishers that we've spoken with for the podcast is the gap between what people think the realities of a pub an indie publisher is versus Mm -hmm. what it actually is yeah what do you think the kind of biggest misconceptions are about like burning eye from people who who don't know you so people have obviously this idea that we're a big press, which we are in terms of our output. And uh, sometimes we get emails that are like, oh, I'd love to visit your offices sometime. <laughs> we're like, mm-hmm, yes. Well, <laughs> my, my, desk, my desk next to my bed. Uh-huh. And Clive's got a small box room with his his office desk in, which is about like an hour and a half on public transport outside of Bristol. <laughs> And uh, and that's our offices, actually. We don't actually have any offices. And I think people have this perception of all indie publishers, I think, you know, pending the margins mm. of all of us, like that we have 
these offices and things like that and and a lot of the time we we don't like burning eye is completely run in a back room completely run in a back room or my very sweaty flat that i'm in right now it's a hot day today (laughs) yeah and i think yeah people have this perception of us as being a much bigger even people that want to publish with us have this idea that we're a much bigger press than we are and i think what I constantly feel like I, I need to remind people is that Burning Eye, we we output a lot of books, but that's just a reflection of what the spoken word scene is doing mm. in terms of like the the work that it's producing, the, the poets that are coming out of it, the success that's happening. That's how we publish. That's how we run almost. It's like if people are doing well and they're becoming popular and things like that, then that's when we want to, we're, we're like, yeah, let's publish you rather than it being, purely based on the writing quality that is obviously something that we look for but the one thing that we ask about everyone that submits to us is that you're an active and perhaps touring poet in the UK and what do you look for in terms of there's obviously a difference between performed and what works on the page what do you look for? How do you make those calls on which ones you will and won't publish? Well, there's some people that, like I just said, in terms of like popularity and things like that, like if someone's getting a lot of traction and things like that, then that's a good sign for us to to want to publish a book because that, that person's going to want to have a lot of copies to sell at their gigs and things like that. Mm-hmm. But part of the reason why we do open submissions, and we do open submissions every other year, um, and part of the reason why I do that is because I'm not able to get out to all the poetry mm. events that are happening around the country. And I like to be representative of who we're publishing in terms of regions. Um, whereas a lot of people will only really concentrate on what's happening in London, particularly. Mm. Um, and we want to have a bit more of a, a broader scope and things like that. So part of the reason why we do open submissions is because I want to see like what's going on in the rest of the country and we get submissions from everywhere all over all over the UK which is absolutely amazing so we we have um so I get to like see things from that in terms of what I want and I think what I'm looking for is it's very easy to be a performer so it's very easy Mm. to get up on stage and win a slam if you can perform it in the right way like your poem can be terrible absolutely uh, i've seen it absolutely <laughs> terrible we all have <laughs> yeah. yeah and you can still win a poetry slam but it's like that's not like how it, it like it is like if you read that poem on a page like mm. i would be very underwhelmed for example um so i like i don't know like i like to be told a story like when laurie submitted laurie's uh, manuscript biceps to me i was invested i was thirsty for it i was like yes I'm loving this. I'm interested. This is what I want to I want to read. I want to read all the between poems. I want to read all of it. And that's what I look for. Like I look for a manuscript that I want to read the whole of rather than just read the first poem and be like, mm, I'm not sure, read the second, read the third. You know. And there are manuscripts that do come in that I'm like, mm, yeah, okay, they're a bit of a slow burner. But I really look for the ones that I can invest in immediately. Mm. So what kind of editing advice do you think like it's it's useful to know the perspective that you're having when you when you get the manuscript in your inbox like what what kind of advice do you offer to people who are maybe putting together collections for submission to send to you like um both kind of like practical stuff and more like i don't know more general stuff i think it's important to know the press that you're submitting to i think uh, that might sound like a really basic thing but like there's a lot of people that just blanket submission presses mm and misgender people in their emails or 
whatever it is. And that's really insensitive and not okay. And also, you don't really care about us as a press, do you? <laughs> you know, you're just committing to everyone all at the same time. You don't care, do you? Oh. <laughs> like, it's true. Like, we get, you know, it's, it makes me sad. I'm like, all oh, right, okay. So you're just going to send the same submission off to everyone, aren't you? Oh, that makes me feel really special. Like, we want to know that you're invested in our press, that you're submitting to us because you know who we are. Mm-hmm. You are interested in what we're putting out in the world. You can tell us a Burning Eye poet and a book that you've read. That's something mm-hmm. that we ask in submissions. If you're listening to this podcast and looking to submit, I would suggest uh, Permeable by Hannah Hutzberg. has books you could cite. Also buy them because they're excellent. Also go get Mary Dickens' new pamphlet. It's great. Yeah, Happiness FM is amazing. Yeah. And um, and then sometimes part of it is like when I do go, so we go to like uh, literature festivals and things like that sometimes, and I see people, or I see people out in Bristol, um, and I see them perform, and they've captivated me so much in their performance that I'm like, I might have a chat with them and see where they're at in their poetry career and things like that. And another thing that I kind of look for is people's um, investment in the community the poetry community as a whole like I think that's really important to like to to offer something to people that work hard to maintain the community that we have Mm. because it takes a lot of work like you know there's the poetry community is big and very varied and as I'm sure like everyone listening now can appreciate how much work it takes to actually put on a regular poetry night Mm -hmm. um and also being a performer and a poet and do all of those things as well as put on a poetry night and organize people and do all of that and those people I'm interested in those people because those people are really invested and I like to see what they've come up with you know I'm someone that likes to be reminded that you know there are other people out there in the world that do things for their community and I like to see that in their submissions that passion I think there's also something there about when people run nights that there tends to be a kind of a, oh that's what you do as a promoter I know somebody that someone that I've spoken to that runs nights has been people often come to them and sort of say oh do you know anybody you know who could do x gig for me and they're like well well I could but yeah. you've not asked you've asked me to find someone do you know what I mean I think there's a tendency to kind of look past the work they're to overlook the work they're doing uh, and see them as a promoter as as a as a night organizer rather than as a poet yeah I think that's true, for sure. I also get it as a publisher as well. Like anyone that's doing anything mm-hmm. like in, in a more of a, a managerial sense in the community, I think a lot of the time their own work gets overlooked. The thing I always think about is um, if, if I go to slams, which isn't very often, is I'm always more interested in the people running the slam than Ooh. who wins the slam. Like Who wins the slam is like, okay, whatever, good good for them on the night. But I'm the person you want to get to know or the person that you should be interested in is the person who's running the night. Yeah. 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 You want to see where they are. And I, I know so many amazing people that run nights and are also amazing poets in their own right. And it's, you know, the two are like, they go hand in hand being a performer and being an organizer and, and, and uplifting other people and giving other people a platform. Like I feel like it's such a commendable thing. And, and I think that more people should be celebrated for it than they are. Not myself. I wasn't including myself. <laughs> in that. Like, in, in terms, of, like I deserve more. But can we, I just can feel we like, have yeah. a little ticker tape parade for Bridget? <laughs> no, no, no. In view of this podcast, that Bridget deserves to be celebrated more. <laughs> no. That's our editorial stance. Round of applause, everyone. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
Oh God, I'm hot already and now I'm blushing. <laughs> All right, enough of this nonsense. Let's get on to the serious stuff. Let's talk Greece and Greece too. Okay. Bridget, what's drawn you to writing about those amazing paragons of our culture? I have fucking no idea, mate. Like, I don't even know. Like, I just, I was away for the uh, third anniversary of my best friend's death. Um, she died the day after her 29th birthday. And every January for those couple of days, I pack up a car with my best friends and bugger the fuck off mm-hmm. um, to parts unknown to hang out with my friends and have a nice time and go for night, nice nature walks and things um, because it's a very horrific time for me and I remember being away on the the last trip that we did in January and thank god we were able to go and I don't know what it was I don't even know I don't I just I don't know what it was but I basically started writing a poem about Kinnicky (laughs) like maybe we had a conversation I couldn't tell you why but (laughs) I just suddenly started being really fixated on Kinnicky's softness Uh in Greece and like I've I love, like, Kaniki's my favourite. Like, fuck Danny. No one likes Danny. Like, Kaniki, everyone I speak to is like, yeah, Kaniki. Kaniki is a babe. And there's that moment, that beautiful moment where the, the where Grease Lightning is ready to go and they're all like, woohoo. And uh, Kaniki takes Danny aside and he's like, will you be my second at Thunder Road? Hmm. And, like, that whole moment for me was such a, I loved that. I That's what I look forward to in the film, that moment. Yeah. Like, when I was younger, I loved it. And the way he is with Riz, and I just, I don't know, I just have always loved Kaniki, and that might be because <laughs> I want to be Kaniki. <laughs> um, so I just started writing this poem, and, uh, and then I started writing a list of other poems that I could write about Greece, about uh-huh. all of these thoughts that I have about Greece. Because this is a film that I've watched since I was a child. Mm. You know, I've seen it, I've seen the musical. You know, I've seen Greece, Greece Two, Greece mm-hmm. Live. Like I've seen it all, and it's just been such a ingrained part of my life that I never really thought about it that much. Uh-huh. And then when I started writing the poems, I was like, "Oh, actually, okay." And it had a lot to do with like my gender identity and like how I was feeling about that, and how when I was fe- thinking about when I was a kid about you know being like what gender I wanted to be. Like, I was always very confused by Greece because I always <laughs> wanted to be everybody. <laughs> and like, I very recently, uh, in the last, like, six months or so, came out as non-binary. Hmm. And uh, this collection of being able to write this and rewrite some of these characters has actually, like, really powered me and really, like, solidified the way that I feel about my gender. Hmm. Um, so, yeah, it's been, a, it's been a journey. It's been a weird, unexpected journey. <laughs> It's a film with a lot of uh, uh, Grease One in particular. Like, it has a lot of really very human moments. Uh, the bit that always gets me is when uh, when Rizzo throows the milkshake at Kaniki. Oh, yeah. um, some of it goes on Frenchie, who's next to her, and she she throws it. It's a big dramatic moment, and then she goes, "Sorry, French," and then walks <laughs> off. And the 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 apology to Frenchie is just like. Oh, what a kind and thoughtful thing to do whilst also in a complete rage. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I get what you mean. There's so many, like, yeah, touching moments in it. That you're like, and these people really care about each other. I was, I was watching in a HMV in Worthing, and I overheard someone uh, pick up the, the the two DVD boxes, Grease and Grease Two, and they said, "quote 
that Grease 2 was the worst film in the whole Grease franchise, which to me seemed a bit bizarre given that there are in fact only two films in the Grease yeah. franchise. Say, is this like Fast and Furious and there's just no. a whole load of Grease films no, that I was unaware two. of? There are two. There are two. A grand total of two. So how he come to the conclusion <laughs> that it was the worst one? I mean, yeah, I mean, it is by default. Um after hearing it's also the second best. Yes, exactly. It depends how you look at it. Um <laughs> I was um yeah, I heard you talking about it uh with Stephen Lightbrown the other day and uh my I it inspired me to watch Grease 2 with my partner. Um and I was like, Oh, I'm gonna be asking Bridget some questions about Greece and Greece 2 what should I ask and she said <laughs> defend Greece 2 which isn't a question but uh what 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 do you take from Greece 2 is a question like why should people who've never seen it give it a spin what does it why is it an interesting film do you think literally cool rider that <laughs> it's such right. a banger okay so <laughs> Like, initially, like, before I really understood the, like, intricacies of sexism, I loved Grease too because I was like, I really wanted more from Riz in Grease, mm. you know, because she was, like, the secondary um, to Sandy. Like, oh, I just wanted more of, like, fuck Sandy, no one cares about you. Like, no. Rizzo, you are amazing. Like, I wanted more of you. And Grease too kind of, like, you know, superficially gave us that with Stephanie. You know, mm. they made her the centralized character, but she was also like the cool girl. Like there was no need to make her over. She was already great. That's yeah. who she was. And um and and so I loved it for that reason. And the the songs in it, though not as catchy, some of them, not you know. Reproduction is not as catchy. Uh, Reproduction is hilarious. <laughs> it's so weird. But the the thing the thing that and I spoke to Molly about this for the Burning Eye podcast the other day. And like the thing that with Greece too is that it's so much more rigidly sexist than Greece. Mm, it is really is so in in Greece it's sort of like everyone gets together because they're all like just friends they're all hanging out and that's what teenagers do but in Greece too it's specific it's very like a central part of the plot that uh t-birds are only allowed to date pink ladies and pink ladies are not allowed to date anyone apart from t-birds and and so the whole reason why Stephanie's such a rebel is because she's like well fuck this I don't I don't want to go out of any of you because you're twats yeah (laughs) and uh you know and it's 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 almost like because they've made stephanie such a powerful female character and such a powerful lead that they've almost had to interject all of this sexism to like Mm. compensate for the fact that they've made such a too maybe too much of a powerful heroine and it's it's very weird and i do you know what when someone says defend greece too i'm not sure that i really can like because there's (laughs) a lot of it that i'm like this is really problematic but yeah. I will say that there are some very touching moments between Principal McGee and Blanche. Uh-huh. And if that's what you watch it for, then maybe that's what you should watch it for because those two are just so perfect. <laughs> it struck me that it's a film massively about rules and like, yeah, like mm. what what they what specifically the female characters, but but also the other characters can't do. It's a weird film. It is a weird film. Yeah, I have to, and that that's kind of redeemed Greece one for me. Actually, this conversation because like I like I love Greece and the songs are great and everything, but there is a point where you get a bit older and you go, sorry. So the point of that was change yourself for a bloke. 
Mm. Otherwise, you're a bit sad and lame. Yeah. Um, a sketchy bloke who brushed you off. Yeah, and kind of, you know, has friends who are like, so did you sexually assault her? Like, so, like, like, you know, when you kind of read into it, you're like, oh, really? No. But yeah, the idea that it, actually it's also a film about roles and rules and who gets to play what role and how mm. we perform gender. I, that actually makes me a little bit more kind of warm to it. Like, and I, I do love it. It is a guilty pleasure, but there are some moments where you go, hmm. Grease 2 is basically okay. the, the gender flipped version in some ways of Grease 1, but the moral yeah. is still the same change yeah. for the first so like Sandy's cousin, yeah. Michael, and he like comes to the school. Incidentally, he's British, not Australian. He is. And, uh, and Frenchie's in it as well. In, in the Dick Van Dyke school. No, no, I think he's actually British. Yeah, he's actually British. Okay, fair enough. And um, and it's all about him, like, he basically, like, plagiarises homework to, like, buy a motorbike. And I'm like, bitch, you're rich. You could have bought that motorbike. <laughs> like, he's so posh. And I think, like, the thing I take away from it is the fact that I'm just like, you're just trying to play at being poor. And then I watch Grease 1 again, and I'm like, Sandy, you're just playing at being poor. Yeah. Like, because you're not, you're not one of these people. Like, in the last scene, you're not changing yourself for a man. You're trying to pour yourself up for a man. Like, because you're not actually part of this working-class Italian-American community. You're this posh girl. <laughs> that's yeah. Like, come in. So there's, like, levels of class that are playing here and that come out so much in Greece too, because he's so posh. He wears, mm. like, a suit and a tie and, like, you know, and she's... Like, you, there's snippets of her home life and she's, like, she works at a garage. Like, her, her dad owns, like, a garage and that's where she works and things. Yeah. So she's She is a greaser by definition. And and Michael's just this weird outsider who comes out of nowhere and I just... I don't trust him, Rebecca. I don't trust him. <laughs> <laughs> He's stealing our poor Michelle Pfeiffer in her first yeah. film role. It's terrible. Yeah. Michelle Pfeiffer, if that's the only reason why you watch this film, Michelle Pfeiffer is fucking amazing in it. She so is. Although her character motivation is she wants she wants a guy who rides a motorcycle. That that is that is that it? Oh, like, yeah, she's not a team bird. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But let's uh, let's forgive these characters. They are all at school. True. Know? I didn't true. have that deeper feelings when I was at school. So what do you think your book's gonna say about Greece and Greece too? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. What's your thesis? <laughs> I, I don't know, to be honest. I just feel like it's, I really struggle with writing. Like uh, a lot of it is like really wrapped up in how I feel about myself as a person. And like, I have a lot mm -hmm. of mental health stuff and I find writing a very difficult thing to do. Like very hard to sit down and write because I have a lot of fear around writing and anxiety. And I used to write a lot of fan fiction when I was younger and like mm -hmm. creative writing when I was a teenager and I loved all of that stuff. And again, maybe it's that thing of like melding the two words getting and getting the both best of both. But when I started writing the Greece stuff, because it wasn't anything to explicitly forefront or do with my life. Yeah. I just found it so easy to like get into it. It felt like right, I was writing fan fiction because I'm basically rewriting or writing, <laughs> you know, my own scenes about what happens in, in the films and stuff like that. And that's sort of what I used to do when I was a teenager, just for mm. a for a laugh. And it's really like brought that that back out in me in terms of writing because it's enjoyable. Yeah. And I'm researching about things just because it's for fun and it's it's really nice. Someone's mm. written a whole book about the Grease fandom and it's eighty pounds on Amazon. <laughs> wow. I know. <laughs> I know. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm not gonna do that. 
but but like I hope I'm hoping by the end of it I will have uh, reimagined Greece for some people. Like the originally Greece was supposed to they were supposed to have a new Greece come out every ten years. Yeah. And that was the original plan for Greece. But when Greece 2 was such a bomb, they didn't do it after that. So I kind of almost feel like my Greece collection will be like a Greece 3 almost. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but with like sort of melding together of Greece and Greece 2. You really want to see what a 21st century version of it would look like. like... I actually have a poem in the new one that's called Notes on Greece 3. And Amazing. it's all about what they should have in Greece 3. <laughs> Amazing. I am gonna like keep asking you Greece questions unless I get cut off. So I think I think we should probably look to wrap to wrap up the Greece stuff. But I'm just gonna ask one more, which is what is your favorite song in Greece or Greece two, and why? There are worse things I could do. Yes, in Greece one, it's amazing. Rizzo was just by her pure nature a rebel. She just didn't give a shit what people mm. thought, and uh, I really enjoyed that song because if you really listen to the lyrics, it's like. Fuck your womanhood. Fuck your idea of what women should be. Like, I could do all of those things. Or I, or, or I could do this. There are worse things I could do. But I'm not going to do those things. And, and It's a really clever song. It's a really clever song. And it's really underrated. Much like Riz. In a lot of ways. Um, and that. And obviously Cool Rider from Greece 2. is just an absolute banger. <laughs> it's just so good. Brilliant. I think that was uh, pretty much everything we wanted to ask. Was there anything you wanted to plug and where can people find out more about your work? So you can find uh, me on Instagram uh, at B as in the animal heart. Yeah. And um, that's also my Twitter handle. Um, you can also find my podcast that I do with my best friend, Kathy chips and beans podcast. Uh, that's on Instagram, but you can listen to it on Spotify, SoundCloud, Apple podcasts, wherever you get your podcasts, basically. Or you can find me tweeting at Burning Eye, Burning Eye Books. Um, where you can find all of our books. Um, yeah, that's where I'm at. And Cassie and I have just released a new episode on our uh, Chips and Beans podcast platform, um, which solely centres around conversations around Black Lives Matter. And I strongly encourage uh, people to listen to it if they are interested in listening to our podcast. Apart from that, you can find me lurking around Bristol. <laughs> um, I have a shaved head and a hamster called Minerva. Oh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> awesome. Yeah, that's my Tinder profile as well. <laughs> Amazing! Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. It's been really nice. I've really enjoyed it. Tip of the month. In our writing tip section, we ask one of our favourite poets for a piece of writing advice or a prompt which you can use in your own work. This month, our very own Laurie Eaves is one of our favourite poets and he shares a tip. Laurie. I'm so honoured to be one of your favourite poets, Rebecca. And, you know, I, I've, at the Dead Darlings podcast, they're a fan of me. I think we're contractually um, obliged to be at this point. <laughs> I think you are. I think you are. Okay, so my writing tip is and this might sound weird, stop making time for your writing. Um, That's going to sound completely counterintuitive. Let me explain what I mean. What I used to do with writing that I found really counterproductive in the long run was I used to keep telling myself, I'd look at my schedule and be like, oh, I've got an idea for for a poem I I might write, but I'm going to leave it. I've got a bit of time on Sunday. I'll write on Sunday. And then Sunday would come around 
and I'd go, oh, actually, the sun's out. I think I'm going to go for a walk or a run. Oh, actually, now I'm a bit tired. Now I won't do it. Maybe I'll do it Tuesday. And then Tuesday would come round, and I'd go, oh, no, I'm going to sack it off again. So that doesn't work. Telling myself I've got a bit of time coming up and writing in that time doesn't really do it in the same way. What I found works much better is grabbing myself one of these pocket notebooks that you can get for £2 from Flying Tiger when shops open again and popping it in my back pocket. And whenever I have the thought of a new poem or a a little bit of time, like literally five, 10 minutes on the bus, then I'll just try and scroll it down in a nice concentrated little burst. Um, And then what I find is that when I do then have a bit of time come up, I can then flick back through the book, see that I've written something and then use it as a springboard for doing a bit more of a concerted write um, when I happen to have the time. So that's my tip. Instead of trying to make time for your writing, try and keep a pocket notebook on you at all times and try and get in the habit of just noting stuff down in it. Thank you very much, Laurie. Now it's time for our book of the month which this month is Hold Your Own by Kate Tempest, which was chosen by Rebecca. So Rebecca, why did you pick this book? Uh, I picked this book because um, I hadn't read it in a while. I read it ages ago and I remember enjoying it. And uh, Kate Tempest is kind of the sort of legend of the spoken word poetry scene. Like if you if you say I do spoken word poetry to people, they'll kind of go like Kate Tempest and you kind of go, yeah, okay, yeah, yeah, okay, yeah, yeah, <laughs> like, Kate, like Kate Tempest, yeah, cool, yeah, I'll take that. And yeah, I just was interested to see what you guys thought of it. And uh, yeah, I thought we'd have a nice discussion of it. Uh, So yeah, what did you make of it? I was surprised by how much I didn't like it. And I say this as someone who has... So, I mean, I I say this as someone who has seen a couple of Kate Tempest's live shows and really liked them, uh, Brand New Ancients. And there was a theatre one she did working with, was it Outside In or um, Theatre Troupe, I believe. Um, So I, I, and, you know, countless, like, odd sets here and there. And, you know, I had people rave at me about how much I need to watch this YouTube clip right now. And obviously, if you were, if you are in spoken word, yeah, I've had people, when I'm about to do a set, ask if I've heard of the, have you heard of Katie Tempest? She's really quite good. Oh, she's, um, like, kind of, Kate Tempest is unavoidable and has become iconic to the scene in a way which, like, I don't think she particularly wanted it. (laughs) It happened. Um, Mm. And I know, like, I think I was speaking to Sarah Hirsch once at the Fringe when most of the review of Sarah Hirsch's one-woman show was explaining what spoken word was by talking about Kate Tempest and how great Kate Tempest was and how much it had affected the review of the first time she ever heard Kate Tempest. And by the way, the show by Sarah Hirsch. <laughs> and Sarah going, but but this is my fucking show. <laughs> what a great review. And I say, it's like, I like Kate Tempest, but fuck mm. off. That's yeah. Awful. So like, I'm well aware that Kate Tempest did not ask for this bizarre status that she has. <laughs> not bizarre, but like this, this, this level of status must be a burden sometimes too. To be the standard bearer for an entire genre. Yeah. yeah. But what I found was when I started reading, um, I she uses rhyme a lot more than I'm used to seeing on the page. Although I like on the stage, it wouldn't be unusual mm. if that makes sense. And I think what got mm. me the most was there were some some things with scansion or kind of half rhymes or switching up the rhyme in a way that 
I think a strong performance can gloss over some things that perhaps could have been polished in the edit but weren't. But when it's just on the page, I was surprised how many times I found myself going, what? Wait, what's the what's the I'm doing now? Wait, you missed it. What? Um, I'm going to go back and read that because I feel like I must have... No, no, you've just switched it up again. Okay, cool. And I feel like in a performance, it probably... It wouldn't seem like a, I don't know, spanner in the works because there'd be other stuff going on or how she emphasises a word when she says it. But yeah, I was surprised how many things like that got on my nerves a bit when I was reading it. What did you make of it, Laurie? Okay, I have a confession Mm. to make, which is, and this is going to come across very humble braggy, so I apologise, but I got a few years ago to be at the audiobook recording of this book all right hold your own yeah, yeah um so i've heard it live which uh i guess like kind of changes your perspective mm-hmm. on it mm-hmm. um because yeah i mean i think everything that you've said hannah is totally valid about the book um it is weird uh reading some of the rhymes written down Mm. um and i mean i've seen i've seen kate tempest a bunch of times um both musically spoken word and with sound of rum like just throughout probably the last 10 years Mm. and i mean as a live performer she's formidable um and definitely like i feel like when people I'm not saying the reviewer for Sarah Hirsch should have not spoken about Sarah Hirsch's show. That's <laughs> awful. Um, but I can see why people who are not into spoken word get Kate Tempest um, because she does help to make spoken word something that feels very accessible I think Mm -hmm. and I think part of the ways that she does that is taking very literary texts and like it's very I mean this book in particular is very intertextual Uh, so it it basically bases itself around uh, I think it's the Greek myth of Tiresias and tries to retell that story through the collection in a way that is also very influenced by hip-hop in a way that's also very influenced by kind of gritty realism of today Mm. and i think when people like that reviewer compare not compare but 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 use kate tempest as their entry point into spoken word i think that's uh really i can see i can see why that's the case Mm. live particularly and on her spoken word and music records is use rhyme and use meter and use a really good flow to bring people into this world that for us is quite normal but for other people is quite unusual Mm. um spoken word isn't something that is noticed by a lot of people (laughs) it's also yeah it's worth pointing out she's won for another collection uh the ted hughes award for poetry which like so yeah like you're saying that it kind of she's got she's drawing on these kind of classic myths She's drawing on hip hop. She's drawing on spoken word, but also kind of this sort of page poetry. You know, she's she's getting that recognition in those spaces too, and I think that's that's really quite an interesting and impressive mix. I think one of the things that makes one, I think one of the reasons that Kate Tempest has become the kind of standard bearer in a lot of ways is that 
the same way that Hamilton is the way that you get West End audiences to watch a hip hop musical. I feel like there's this mix mm. of the the current form that people might be some audiences might be less familiar with, might be seen as less officially arty, and then you mix it with something that feels very safe, like Greek myths or like American history lesson. And I I don't think I don't mean to say that it's sort of I don't mean it in a sort of calculated way, but I feel like people who might be snobby motherfuckers about most spoken mm. word will go, oh, but this one's okay. The same way um, I, I, my my uni ex's snobby ass mother um, suddenly decided that Bill Bailey was intelligent the one time he did a Beowulf set. <laughs> and up until that point, mm. and it was like, he was fucking good before. It's just that this is the one fucking measure you've got, you snob. Which is partly, it's about entry points, but also kind of hijacking high art and mm. kind of going, yeah, well, this is how it belongs to everybody. This is how it works for us. And yeah, I think within the, like, so this is the, the story of Tiresias, who is punished. He disturbs two snakes who are having sex, uh, and for Ooh. it is turned into a woman for seven years, and then turned back into a man. And then Zeus and Hera are having an argument over his numerous affairs, to which Zeus sort of says, well, women enjoy sex more anyway, so it's a bigger deal for you to have an affair. Um, so they kind of pull Tiresias up in front of them as kind of, you can say, you can settle this. Do women enjoy sex more than men? And Tiresias says, yes, from my experience, as both they do. Hera promptly blinds him in a fit of rage and kind of Zeus gives him the gift of, of seeing and knowledge and predicting the future uh, as a kind of literally in the book he goes ah oh, mate compensation yes it's compensation as a kind of sorry mate hmm. uh didn't mean to drag you into this in the opening poem sort of Tiresias is a, a boy of 15 and it's kind of very much a sort of urban um setting kind of he's he's wandering through the woods hmm. and there's kind of used condoms and fag butts and you know it's it's yeah. very much that kid you knew from school kind of thing it's also very British mm. like it, it feels very like woodland in the uk like rather than anywhere else Shopping which trolleys is and... well one of the things that i find that this book does well is up front you have this very long poem mm. uh, it's 25 pages i think uh just called tiresias which basically explains the plot of of everything that rebecca's just capped and then the rest of the book is poems in four different cycles so childhood womanhood manhood and then a final one uh, blind prophet um and each one kind of retells parts of that story that you've just seen um and intermingles in it with poems that seem to be very personal to tempest i think i mean obviously like yeah with caution of kind of assigning autobiographical stuff to it, but it does seem that they're quite personal to tempest mm. yeah and i think one of the things that I was thinking about while I was reading it was I just read another collection, an unpublished collection um, by another author that had a lot of like myth and uh, different cultural references. Um, and I was trying, I was talking to them about, you know, you've kind of got a, it's a very difficult challenge that you need to kind of signpost these different myths for people who are not mm. very yeah. aware of them. And I think having that one poem up front to explain it all before you then go into the different stages and analyze them in a little bit of detail was quite uh, a nice device to do that in the book as a whole. Mm. Um, so I thought that worked really well um, for me. One of the things that, picking up on what you said, Rebecca, 
is that yeah it does feel very personal um and i think this is kind of a general thing with kate's books as opposed to her albums is that i think they are more personal i think they are more autobiographical like for example there's poems in here in there there's one in here called india which um i really remember standing out to me when i first heard the book which is very um which is to do with her sexuality and that's not something which is she explores in say her musical projects her musical projects really certainly the first two albums she put out are very kind of character based yeah kind of exploring different characters and being kind of like the narrator extrospective if you like rather than introspective so i think that's kind of a difference and it's it's interesting because i've spoken uh, it's interesting what you're saying hannah because i've spoken to other poets who have for example been huge kate tempest fans and gone to see see gigs where she's doing a particular project and walked out and gone you know what that didn't really do it for me i didn't really enjoy Mm. it but they're still huge fans (laughs) they're just huge fans of different parts of the work that she does Mm. and that's okay you can be a fan of a book and not uh not a fan of a, a record and yeah. a fan of one book and not a fan of another. I mean, I, I found the ones where she's being, the more personal ones, the fancying girls ones, um, I related to a lot more. I, I find... <laughs> I wonder why. Yeah, I know. Um, but <laughs> but the ones where it's more about... I, I feel like it's the ones where she's trying to encompass everything that's wrong with the modern world that I just think you've thrown mm-hmm. the net too wide here it's it's you need to narrow it down to some specifics because i feel like there's when i when it seems like she's sharing wisdom all of the wisdom i i think it falls into a fairly common trap in spoken word where people don't have enough specifics or there isn't yeah. a narrative thread to the specifics and then i yeah those mm-hmm. those are the ones that got up my nose to be honest and i'd agree with you actually i would agree with you on that i think the particularly towards the latter the the, the books in four parts and the final part is very kind of here's everything that's wrong with the world and a bit general Mm -hmm. which i mean i would i suppose you know in in the defense of the book like it's supposed to be kind of tiresia so it's called blind prophet Mm. prophet is p-r-o-f-i-t and obviously Teresa is the blind prophet he's predicting the future and in defense of the book, it's supposed to, you know, there is this kind of, oh, he can see too much and it's all a bit awful. And, you know, seeing everything is, is um, there is a line about, you know, being able to see everything is far too much kind of thing. But yes, I think I, I also was a bit like, yeah, okay, yeah, we spend too much time on screens and yeah, like the planet's dying and yeah, yeah it's all off. I, maybe, and also maybe reading this at the moment is probably a bit much. Yeah, you've got no idea what's coming way back in 2015 or whenever it was you wrote this. Yeah. I mean, it's also quite a long collection. There's a lot mm. in it. Like, it's, what, 100 and something pages? It's pretty long. Yeah. For poetry collection in general. I will say that the, um, the sum, one of my favourite poems uh, in it is like, like you were saying, Hannah, about the kind of the personal stuff being the kind of the best stuff. One of my favourite poems in it is, is Some Couple, just because there's mm. a line that there's always some couple in the ravenous stages of loving just when we've argued ourselves into cunts. And <laughs> yeah, I just, I just love that line because I've definitely been in those arguments with a partner where I'm like, I love you, but neither of us come out of this well. We've been having this argument mm. so much. We're both, we're both the bad guy here. We're, we're both 
just nobody's nobody's objectively looking that at this and going one of you's right we're both just awful should we stop um <laughs> yeah. so yeah i just like that yeah i there's, there's a lot in it i really i really enjoy um i think particularly i love the ones where she writes about her dog <laughs> and uh animals and yeah. kind of communication between humans and animals i I love that. The one about um, watching a dog sleeping is really lovely. Yeah, they're just very cute. Um, her dog, by the way, if you Google a picture of it, is this gorgeous, big, I think husky, but I might be wrong on that. I'm not very good with dog breeds. But <laughs> it's very cute. I think as well, like, I don't disagree with you, Hannah, about the rhyme. The, the rhyme often feels like it's been written to be spoken aloud. Mm. And when you listen to her records or hear her perform live like oh yeah it works it scans it it, you you get it and i and i think on the page some of these poems feel a bit weaker because they haven't because they are still in the trap of rhyming and it doesn't quite work as well Mm. particularly because you know one of the beautiful things about hip-hop is is switching up your flow, mm. having it going one way and then switching it and having it going another way. Yeah, it can be used to great effect on the stage and then on the page if it's not... And I'm not sure how you'd signal it on the page, but yeah. And so it's interesting that, you know, I I think, you know, from my perspective, it's a mixed bag in terms of the the rhyming working or not working. Like, I think you're right. I don't disagree with you on that. It's interesting what we're talking about, about Kate being quite... Uh, Accepted outside the mainstream of spoken word um, in a way that a lot of poets aren't. And I think it's also interesting to think about the way that she is perceived within the world of spoken word specifically. Because I've I've heard certain other poets kind of look at some of her work and go, oh, and I, the the literal accusation I've seen she's referring towards her as oh this is cat on the mat the cat sat on the mat kind of stuff um, rhyming wise like you know and just really getting het up on her rhymes and I think you either have to go with that or you don't like it's it's mm. it's very like a taste thing I guess. Yeah, I just think it's interesting. I don't know. How do you guys think she's perceived by other spoken word artists? I think generally as a goddess. I I see just a lot of a lot of kind of yeah real adoration. Personally, I think the majority is adoration, and I think there's a lot of people who she might have been your first taste of spoken word and sort of got you in. So there's a level of kind of gratitude as well. And I think when she's good, she is fucking awesome. But I have also heard, I think I think there's something about just being, if you're the tallest tree in the forest, on the down low, I don't think anyone wants to do it publicly. I have heard some sniping or um, I think also just a few people who immediately go, I'm, I write just like Kate Tempest, which is, you know, it's like saying you're writing a best-selling novel. Fuck off. Like, um, I think because... Because she's so big, she's then got a lot of intentional or not copycats. And then people can be sort of mean or dismissive about her and her copycats and the people she's inspired in one breath. And that's not not hers to account for. But I feel like that that happens when you're that big. I mean, like similarly, like when we went to go and see Andrea Gibson, Mm -hmm. um, I 
hadn't heard their poetry, but I'd heard a lot of people who were doing Andrea Gibson style poetry um, less well than Andrea Gibson did it. So when I went, I had a tiny bit of trepidation about, oh, is this going to live up to you know what the excitement that that you guys had about it and then when i got there and and saw it and it got got wrapped up in it mm. it was okay yes like this is the real deal i love it like but likewise they do influence a lot of people who are you know starting out and that's okay but you know you don't immediately become as good as someone like yeah. andrew gibson or kate tempest and have that kind of acceptance in a more w- mainstream way um, so yeah, so would you guys recommend this book? No. <laughs> Personally, I, I was surprised how grouchy I was about it. To put a few more balanced bits back, there are a couple of things I really liked where she ran words together, creating a god cub as a word, and I've got folded down pages. There are a couple of things like that that I really like that kind of reminded me slightly of um, when when I've been reading Under Milkwood, and I've noticed Dylan Thomas does that a couple of times, mm. and... I yeah there are and the fancy and girls ones I liked but I personally was surprised how grouchy I was about it yeah I don't know nah (laughs) would I recommend the book I think yeah I definitely would but I would also say that depending on what you as a listener are into this might not be the best entry point into Kate Tempest and her, and her work. Mm. Um, I think it depends what you are looking for. I mean, I can recommend a ton of great stuff that she's been involved with. Like the first Sound of Rum album is great. It's a really kind of scratchy indie record that's got a hip hop sort of bent to it. And uh, the more recent ones, Let Them Eat Chaos. I think her most recent album, The Book of Traps and Lessons, is a really interesting and very brave album it's much more spoken word mm. and less musical which is interesting collection wise weirdly the only one i think i haven't read is brand new ancients which is the one that won the ted hughes prize but like hold your own yeah it's quite a personal collection and running upon the wires probably even more so that's very intimate as a collection and you know i think what i would say more than would i recommend this book is if you try kate tempest and don't get into it whatever you're trying might be the wrong entry point for you be aware that there's lots of entry points that are that might work better or maybe she's not for you and that's fine um my my snide mean brain suddenly remembered that my favorite onion headline of all time is frank zappa fan thinks you just haven't heard the right album yet (laughs) (laughs) yeah i think picking up from laurie's point i I would recommend it, but I would suggest also watching some of the videos of the performances online um, as well, because I do think, yeah, she is this kind of, you know, this is separation of work from the artist, but I think her her work is like a huge package almost and kind of, yeah, but it is written to be performed and it's written with that kind of particular style of performance in mind. Um, and I think it's more enjoyable if you kind of know how she plan how she intends to perform it on some level Mm. so yeah so that's hold your own by kate tempest and it's out on picador poetry and you can buy it at picador.com forward slash poetry if you're interested or like most bookshops actually has to be said now it's time for our notice board section where we spotlight 10 or so opportunities to look out for where you can perform your work or submit it for publication 
So Button Poetry, which is the YouTube channel that spreads a lot of uh, amazing poetry, mostly in the US and Canada, but they do do some over here. And they kind of document spoken word poems. They are having a uh, video contest. So they are looking for people to video themselves doing their poems and send it to them between 15th of July and August 31st. And so, yeah, if you uh, go to buttonpoetry.com forward slash video dash contest, you can find more details, but well worth if you've got kind of videos or you want to record videos of yourselves performing, uh, well worth getting involved with that because they've got a huge following and um, yeah, really worth checking out. And then the uh, next Hammer and Tongue Cambridge is going to be run online uh, Friday 3rd of July and that was featuring Leanne Moden and Camille McCauley. Uh, and that's worth checking out. Faye runs a fantastic event and it's a really nice event that kind of has seems to have made the leap online really well. So I'd recommend checking that out. Uh, what do you guys have? I spotted apples and snakes sharing uh, Common Ground, who I haven't heard of before, um, but it's some uh, Common Ground run by Seasons for Change um, are offering four 10 grand commissions for UK-based creatives to make environmental work with underrepresented communities or communities that are underrepresented in the climate change movement. So they're looking to hear from black, Asian and minority ethnic people, uh, ref- people who may be refugees, deaf, disabled, neurodivergent, LGBTQ, working class, etc. So if, if you have any disadvantaged groups in your uh, Venn diagram and you care about the environment, go check that out because a 10 grand commission is not to be sniffed at. Then also the National Poetry Competition, the big one, is open again until the 31st of October. Um, it is. It needs to be an unpublished poem, 40 lines, and you need to be 18 or over. And the top prize is 5K. Um, both of these are almost certainly going to have a million entries, but make your entry fucking good then. <laughs> um, and uh, I mentioned it last time as uh, uh, as well but the national center for writing nationalcenterforwriting.org.uk which is based in norwich um has got a f- various online writing courses and some are free so they're worth checking out poetry london has announced the third year of its mentoring scheme offering the chance for three talented poets to receive a, f- a year of free one-to-one mentoring from leading poets varney Caffield deo wayne holloway smith and mimi calvati Applications are at poetrylondon.co.uk and the deadline is the 31st of July. The Robert Gray's Poetry Prize 2020 is taking submissions until 21st of July. It's open to everyone and unrestricted by location, genre or subject. The prize will be given to the best single poem submitted. Multiple entries up to four are encouraged, but poems will be judged separately. The winner will receive £1,000 and two runners-up will receive £100 and the Robert Graves Prize is going to be awarded at Wimbledon Book Fest in October. If it's going ahead physically, I'm not sure. There is a special category as well for under-19s with a prize of £150. And also for me, the Aesthetica Creative Writing Award is open for submissions of poetry and short fiction. Winners are selected for both categories and awarded with £1,000. And also anybody who makes the top 60 writers gets a publication within the Aesthetica Creative Writing Anthology. The deadline is 31st of August and you can submit at aestheticamagazine.com and you spell that A-E-S-T-H-E-T-I-C 
amagazine.com. Brilliant. Has anybody got anything they would like to plug? I've got a book still out, uh, Biceps on Burning Eye Books, published by Bridget Hart, who you heard earlier. That's out from my website, which is laurieeves.bigcartel.com or also through Burning Eye directly, burningeye.co.uk. And uh, if you go on my website, there's also the book on cassette and a bundle with the cassette and book and download. I've also got it up on Bandcamp now. So if you want to hear me read it, but you don't want to bother with a cassette because you're not living in 1996, (laughs) you can stream it um, unlimited on Bandcamp, which is my name, laurieeves.bandcamp.com. My website is laurieeves.com and uh, you can find me on Facebook at Laurie Eves Poet, Twitter at Mr. L. Eves and Instagram at Laurie Eves Poet as well. I am Hannah Hutzpah, C-H-U-T-Z-P-A-H and you can find me on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook page, all that jazz. But in terms of plugs... By the time this goes out, I believe it will be live. Um, I volunteer intermittently over the years uh, with NetPol, the Network for Police Monitoring, because I don't know if you've heard, but the police are shit. Um, and when this goes live, uh, and NetPol is is a coalition of all the good guys. It is the respectable front of many community groups that have been doing the good work for decades like new monitoring project who supported uh, Stephen Lawrence's family uh, in their fight for justice we've got people from Aldermaston and women's peace camp against the war who've been working from then till now from from the 80s till now um anyway netpol are awesome and they are doing a report on the policing of black lives matter protests and how the police have been acting with coronavirus as well and how those two have intersected. Um, And if you would like to hold those motherfuckers to account, uh, they are um, fundraising to write this report, which will be used by academics and others to, and legal groups to hold the police to account. Um, So if you go to netpol.org, N-E-T-P-O-L.org, they have got a fundraiser to support Black Lives Matter, support your civil liberties and fuck the police. Thank you. <laughs> Excellent. You can find me on Twitter at Rebecca K. Cooney, uh, my website, which is RebeccaKCooney.wordpress.com, and on Instagram at any name but Becky. Uh, you can also find the podcast on Twitter at Dead Darlings Pod, Facebook as Dead Darlings Podcast, and you can email us at deaddarlingspodcast at gmail.com. If you liked what you heard, please remember to rate, review, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and help us spread the word. Uh, and do feel free to just say hi on social media. It's nice. We're friendly. We like it when people say hi. <laughs> Sleep for yourselves. <laughs> Don't say hi to Laurie. He's a miserable son. <laughs> you can say hi to me. I love this. I love people saying hi too. Before we finish, Rebecca, before we do the goodbye, we've got a very important announcement. Oh, yes. <laughs> it's our birthday. Yes. We've been going for 12 months, which as many other people will know, this is a year. This is episode 12, so we are officially one year old. We're 17 old years away from our being to, allowed to drink. I don't know. What can you do at one year? We're, we're either walking or talking, but not both, probably. No, that's true. Yeah. Hopefully we're talking. I think it's more important for a podcast yeah. to be able to talk. Yes, right? me too. Uh, podcast full of parrots. Um, happy so yeah, birthday so, to you. Happy birthday, guys. We're one. We're very cuddly <laughs> and very cute right now. So yes, thank you very much for listening for a year. Particularly to anyone who's listened from the start. Yeah. Thank you, guys. It's been really good fun. Thank you to Rebecca for Uh, pulling it all together. Yeah, thanks to our wonderful producer, Rebecca Guys, I've got this really stupid (laughs) idea. Want to do it with me? Yeah.
Thank you to my co-hosts, Hannah and Laurie, to Bridget Hart for joining us, to Texas Radio for our theme music and to you for listening. Here's to the next year. Bye.